Uber isn't a company you can invest in, but it's a disruptive business that's already had an impact on the way many of us lead our lives. And I have to declare an interest, I love it. Uber is a utility that connects passengers and drivers for safe, tracked travel with an app that eliminates the need for money and ensures payment. And Uber Eats is an extension of that service, connecting customers and restaurants for home-delivered food that's charged directly to your credit card. David Rorsheim is the General Manager for Uber in Australia and New Zealand, and I've invited him into the spotlight to give us a better understanding of how this disruptor works and what we can expect from them in the future. I spoke to him on the day that his boss, the Uber CEO, was apparently getting into some trouble for being seen to support Donald Trump. In fact, there were protests and an online campaign that wasn't kind to Uber at all. So was that damaging for business? Yeah, it's clearly a turbulent time in the United States and our headquarters are in San Francisco and, and the US is still our, our biggest part of the business. Our CEO, Travis, he was invited on to... Uh, president had an economic or business advisory council um, and they invited you know, 20 of the biggest CEOs in town to, to participate back in December. Wasn't much news then, but then I guess after you know, the president took office and uh, has been making headlines this week, um, there was a, uh, a point of view that said, oh, you know, Travis is advising Trump. He'd never met him. Um, and uh, so as of this morning, in fact, actually called up the, the Donald and said, I'm not going to be participating in uh, you know, advising this administration. So the, you know, things move quickly and uh, Uber is a company that a lot of people use, a lot of drivers depend on it, a lot of riders use it. So they look to you know, what we're doing and what positions we take. And so you know, we as a company you know, take that responsibility seriously and you know, stand up for what we believe in. Yeah, so it must have been a quite a new experience for Uber. I mean, you know, you're a company that is likes to be, I presume, seen as cool and modern. Uh, everyone loves Uber, I guess. That's the kind of the aura that surrounds you. And all of a sudden you've got protesters and suddenly everyone hates you. That was, must have been kind of upsetting for the, for the business and people in it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's always unusual. Uh, we take any, any criticisms that come our way to heart because uh, we know we're doing good work. One thing that isn't unusual to us, though, is a bit of confrontation. And we've worked you know, with governments of all different colours in all different parts of the world to effect change. That's what we do. We have a vision for how transport and how cities can change. And we have to work with governments of all types around the world. So it's not unusual for us to be to be in the room and, and agitating. And so, you know, in some respects, it's, it's not unusual for us. And, um, you know, people look to us as a change agent. Um, and this is just another another chapter in that. Uh, perhaps we better start by telling us what Uber is and how it works. Sure, Uber's been up and running four years in Australia. It's an app for you to download onto your smartphone. You'll enter your credit card details, contact details, and then a map pops up. We locate where you are, and you can see the cars that are nearby available to pick you up. And when you're ready to go somewhere, you say, request Uber now. You'll have a choice between an everyday Uber X or a fancy Uber Black. And then a driver nearby will pick that up. You'll see their name, photograph, their license plate, their car type. You'll watch them come to you on the map. And, uh, and then you, you get in, drive from A to B, and then just simply get out. There's no money changing hands because your credit card's on file. 
and uh, and away you go. That's actually one of the best things about it that I find is never have you just have to get out of the car. You don't have to pay. It's great. It's good for you and good for the driver too because they're not they're not carrying any cash, so it's uh, it's safe for them. They just get the money in their bank once a week, and they're happy as Larry. That um, also drives me crazy watching them come because when they take the wrong route, it drives me crazy. <laughs> There's a lot of transparency. You can see where they are. Now, that GPS also means we can record the whole trip from A to B. So on your receipt, you'll see the journey. If you think they went the wrong way, you've got the opportunity to complain about it. Um, and also you're both rating each other one to five stars. At the end I was going to say that's the thing you haven't mentioned is the rating, which is actually fantastic as well because you get rated but also the, you get to rate the driver. That is that And, is the, how and that's make... important to the drivers. I get the sense that they really need and want that rating. Tell us what it means to the drivers. That's right. At the end of every journey, you rate the driver one to five stars and they rate you too, which is not always a widely known fact. But the drivers in each city, they have to maintain a certain average score. And that's how we make sure only the best drivers are on the platform. So the drivers, that obviously encourages them to do good work. And if their scores aren't great, we can provide some examples of feedback um, and some tips on, you know, please make sure your GPS isn't too loud. Please make sure you got water in the car. Please make sure your car's clean to make sure that they, they keep a high score. Well, let's talk about how Uber's changing the world, changing the way cities and transport operates because our investors are keen to understand the sharing, sharing economy, which Uber is a pioneer of. And tell us about how you see the end game here. Well, I could, I could talk to what's going on right now and maybe we can guess about the end game. Yeah, the sharing economy is is the label attached to what we're doing. There's a bunch of innovations that made Uber possible, but the idea of using the stuff we already have better was a really key part of it. And we're not the only ones doing it. Airbnb is looking at the empty rooms that are in houses and making better use of that. There's people around Australia looking at car parks, looking at caravans, all sorts of things that we already have. We probably have too much stuff and saying, how can we make better use of what we've got? It was born during the GFC when people were... were basically running out of money and looking to get a bit smarter about how they spend their money. And, uh, you know, that frugality is, is good for the economy. So, so we're tapping into the empty cars and the empty seats in those cars and, and filling them up. And that's enormously productive and allows people that do own those assets to turn them into some cash. In fact, I've seen comments to the effect that what you're doing and other firms like you is actually part of the reason business investment is down because you don't need to have so much business investment if you're reusing existing stuff. So the business model is is very asset light. So Uber doesn't own any cars and Airbnb doesn't own any any hotels. And they've amassed, you know, enormous valuations without you know, that same level of capital investment that businesses are typically used to. So, you know, I'd keep a lookout for, for ways to do the same thing. Can you help us understand the business model, the Uber business model? Is it right that about 83% of the fares are retained by the drivers and that Uber keeps about 17%? So that's right. The drivers, it's free to sign up. They log on. Someone nearby is looking for a ride. The driver from A to B. Um, you, the passenger, pay $20 or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, the driver keeps 80 to 85% of the fare. It's a slightly different deal depending on when they joined. And yeah, Uber takes a service fee on each trip. So 20 to 25%. No weekly fee, no joining fee. So if drivers use it lots, they pay more. If they don't use it much, they don't pay as much. But they're, they're free to choose how many hours they do each week, um, suiting them and their lifestyle. 
And Uber's losing a lot of money, right? Apparently. How much can you tell us how much it's losing? <laughs> oh, it's it's no secret, right? We are a pretty young company, all things told, um, about six years old globally, and we're absolutely investing. So there is um, you know, m- multiple reports detailing um, some true, some not so true, but... Well, tell us the true one. <laughs> that's not my job. Um, we've raised a bunch of money, um, billions of dollars from investors around 13 the world. $13 billion, I think. Is that right? In, in that order. At a recent valuation of $69 billion, which makes Uber the most valuable private company in the world, I think. Or the most valuable startup, perhaps. That's what the... If, if we is. if we can still take the startup title, that would, that would be true. Yeah, we've raised money from investors because they believe in what we're doing and then we're going to go spend it. Um, and we're spending that on on growing the market, building new technology. We've got cars driving around Australia right now, taking photos of the streets, which is not free, um, to improve our mapping so that the, the app works better. Those are all investments that uh, we think are sensible. A site called The Information had an exclusive recently that you lost or Uber lost $800 million in the third quarter. Is that right? Uh, not, I can't confirm you can't. I can't confirm the financials. Uber is, as you say, uh, one of the largest private companies in the world. So it's, it's it's not my job to disclose how we're doing. No, okay. Well, so, but it's there's been a lot of scepticism about the business model. I mean, obviously, as Australian CEO, you'd be confident that the the thing the business is going to make money at some point. Yeah, the the things that give us a lot of confidence is. Yeah, at this point, there's there's two and a half million Australians using the app to get around, fifty four thousand using it to make money, and you know, I can see that that number growing every month. What's exciting is watching how passengers sign up, start taking rides, and over time they take more and more rides. So most businesses, their customers sign up and then slowly they lose interest and they go away. But what we see is people sign up, they try it out, and they start to gain confidence. They know reliably, they press a button. And on Uber, you're typically getting picked up in three, four, five minutes around Australia, reliably, any time of the day, most parts of the city. And they start to realise, hang on, I don't need my own car anymore. And that insurance that they used to have, would you go out and knowing that previously you couldn't guarantee you'd find a, a ride home, meant that you'd take your own car. But we're seeing more and more people say, actually, I can rely on Uber now. And so you see families giving up the second or the third car Sure, they keep the primary car still with the baby seat or the roof rack or whatever features they have. And so people are taking more rides than they ever used to. So we could see that happening all around the world is that people sign up to Uber and they use it more and more and more every year. So that gets us very comfortable with the idea of investing to make sure people find out about the service and and use it um, because we're confident that we are changing the way they get around the cities and that ride sharing is only going to grow and car ownership we think is going to decline. And um, one of the interesting things that you've introduced is the surge pricing, which kind of makes the whole thing like a marketplace. And so when there's a lot of demand, the price goes up and so on, which is kind of perfectly free market principles at work. How has that gone? That's a, that's a totally different model to taxis. So, the, yeah, the idea of, of dynamic pricing is very, very normal for many industries, but it, it was somewhat new to point-to-point transport, to taxis. People are familiar with you know paying extra for a hotel room around Sydney Harbour on New Year's Eve, um, and likewise, you know, your airline ticket from Sydney to Melbourne is more expensive at peak hours and, and non-peak hours. So, but it was new to point-to-point transport, so there was it, that brought plenty of controversy with it. Well, the reason we do it, as I described before, is to provide the reliability. So we want to be something you can depend on, and our promise is, you, know, you can always get a ride when you need it. 
it'll be the cheapest available ride you can get. And so at some times a day, it's undesirable, unattractive to, to drive, New Year's Eve, of course. And so when there aren't enough cars nearby, the prices go up, which is a signal to all the drivers in other parts of the town or who might be at home. Automatically, they get a message on their screen, pops up in red, says, hey, you know, things are super busy around the MCG right now. And it means they, they come to the MCG and they're, they're rewarded for doing so. As soon as there's enough cars and the market gets back to balance, it goes back to normal prices. But the core of it all is it means you, there's always a car there so you can get... get Apparently, you've introduced Uber Taxi. Is that right? How does that work? Uh, there's, there's a few parts of the world. I haven't seen that myself, I must confess. Yeah, it's, there's a few parts of the world where we said, hey, look, there's already taxis on the road. Could Uber make the experience of booking a taxi and then paying for it at the end of the ride better than the current system? And in a few markets, we did that. But um, UberX is, is our focus. So UberX is the low-cost Uber, which is where individuals, any individual with a suitable car, less than 10 years old and a good driving record can sign up and, and log on, as discussed, um, make some extra money during their downtime. That works because it, it taps into the cars the city already has. The problem with taxis and also Uber taxi is when all the taxis are full, no app can fix you. When all the taxis are full, there's, there's nothing you can do to, to make them reliable again, whereas UberX taps into the cars the city already has, and so that's... Um, that's our focus. Some, someone told me they use Uber taxis when uh, it's peak hour and the taxi can get to use the uh, express lane on the freeway, which is an interesting idea because Uber X cars can't do that. That That's true. That's particularly relevant in Sydney. Um, we see people on the North Shore for the same reason coming across the bridge, see that taxis have some privileges that the rest of the community does not. Um, including the, the bus lanes and the high occupancy lanes. So, yeah, it's true that taxis still enjoy some advantages that everybody else doesn't. What we would like to see is those lanes prioritise you know, people who are sharing their ride. So if you, people are putting two, three, four passengers into the car, whether it happens to be a taxi or whether it happens to be just some people from work carpooling with each other, that ultimately is the behaviour the cities want to encourage, which is let's have less cars going over the bridge. So we you know, will be advocating for that as, as cities are planning their traffic and their congestion. And uh, I've been wondering how, how it works really because in a sense um, the cost of running an individual car are always going to be higher than the cost of running the cars in a fleet by definition because a fleet has scale. And so somebody driving for Uber, you would think in terms of the cost of registering, running the car, is it because the drivers tend not to actually think about the real costs of running their car? Is that how it works? No, the as I mentioned, the focus is on, you know, these are cars that people already own. And so the biggest cost was buying it in the first place. And you know, this is why teenagers aren't bothering to buy cars anymore because it's a big upfront cost and they don't want to deal with that. They'd rather just press a button and get a ride when they need it. So similarly for the, for the car owners, like Australia already has 18 million cars. Most of the people driving with the Uber platform didn't go out and buy a new car. So it's a sunk cost, effectively, that's right. And how, how much of a difference has Uber Eats made? Yeah, that's, that's something new. We've started a few new businesses over the last six years. We started as a luxury product, then we did UberX, UberPool. Uber Eats is something new. So we actually had a, a courier business, Uber Rush, um, which we opened up in the US and it allowed businesses to use Uber to deliver their stuff. And we watched and we saw that the overwhelming use was food delivery. And it, 
it made sense when we th- when we reflected on it, which is food is something you need fast. You don't need your book from Amazon in five minutes. You're happy to wait overnight. So there's a, probably a cheaper and more efficient way to do it. But food, food was super popular. We said, oh, that's interesting. So let's uh, let's focus on that. So Uber Eats is another app, separate app. You open it up, you see menus from restaurants nearby, pick what you want, and then uh, a restaurant makes the food and then an Uber uh, courier picks it up and brings it to your house. So what, what proportion of your revenue or your rides or however you want to express it is now Uber Eats? Is it becoming a material part of your business? So again, I, I couldn't share the exact numbers. I'm actually, it's only nine months old, so I don't even know uh, what the current figures are for that business. Um, it's taken off rapidly in Australia because you know, there's a bunch of people that trust Uber to get from A to B and when we present them with something else, they say, oh, I'll give that a go. That sounds interesting. Um, and it taps into those cars that are already on the road. So that we have a, a logistics network across the city. And bicycles. And, and now bicycles and even people on foot, you name it. But yeah, some of the four-door cars that we're already doing Uber journeys, but also some you know, just smaller two-door cars that are suitable for, for delivering stuff. We're just making better use, again, of the cars that are already out there. So sometimes I might be delivering a person from A to B, um, but around lunchtime maybe it's... Some restaurateurs have told me that uh, they're actually thinking about just having a restaurant that doesn't have seats in it and they just want to cook for Uber Eats because it's so much easier and, and the scale is can be so much greater. We have seen that. There was one restaurant down here in Melbourne, On It Burgers. Apparently it's a great hamburger. It is. I can, uh, <laughs> I can testify to that. <laughs> So when we got set to launch Uber Eats in Sydney, they, they called us and they were, they were grumpy. They said, oh, why didn't you tell us? We're super excited. We want to be part of Uber, in, Uber Eats in Sydney. And so within a space of two or three weeks, I think they set up a kitchen only in Sydney to deliver their food through Uber Eats, which has gone very well for them and is, is remarkable because it means, yeah, the costs of starting that business now are much lower than they ever were. And there's some that might even do it I think in the US, there's some people that do it one day a week. There's a guy who makes pulled pork sandwiches, does it on Wednesdays, makes X hundred of them and sells them through Uber Eats and he just rents some space in a kitchen for a few hours. So historically, if you had a new retail concept, you had to find the lease, fit out the space. You're investing hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars to find out if anybody likes your thing. Whereas in this Uber world now, we've got customers and we've got the delivery and we've got the marketing. So you can test out your idea if it's good great start opening kitchens and restaurants but you can find some customers overnight so one thing that uber's doing and pioneering is driverless cars in the u.s obviously you're not doing it here yet but are you familiar with what's going on with that in in the u.s yeah we're giving it a good go so we're not the only ones that are working on an autonomous car um you know according to the reports apple tesla google and all the automatic. I got the feeling that go. Uber is pushing it hardest. Well, I might be wrong. It was just the sense I had that, particularly in Philadelphia. So we've got them. We've got them on the road. So yes, in, in Philadelphia, and I think now Arizona, there are you know, these self-driving Ubers on the road. They've still got a safety driver behind the wheel who it takes over if ever the system says that it needs some help. But they're also monitoring what's going on and there to answer questions. So some of the Ubers in those cities will be a, an autonomous experience. They're not quite finished yet. There is still someone behind the wheel. So we can't call them uh, finished yet. But uh, clearly this is the next disruption for our industry. And if we don't build it, someone else will. So we looked at that and said, rather than standing on the sidelines and hoping and wishing that the future doesn't come, 
we're going to go in and, and have a good go. So we partnered up with MIT University and we made some acquisitions of some top-notch um, robotics experts and uh, you know, we're trying to build our own. So but do you understand the business case here? I mean, is it simply to have lower costs? I mean, yeah, I get that you want to be at the forefront of the change and that you're going to be disrupted at some point, so you better, better be part of the disruption, but also there needs to be a business case. And I presume it's simply that you end up with lower cost rides. That is our focus. Um, that's what gets you doing Uber Pool, where you're putting multiple passengers in the car. And yeah, autonomous, clearly, if the engineering keeps progressing in the way that it is, um, we'll have the potential to deliver someone from A to B cheaper than we can today. And if we don't do it, someone else will. So do you think, therefore, that UberX and what, what we've got at the moment with Uber and taxis, for that matter, are all transitional? That Uber is, in fact, a transitional technology towards a time when actually there's no jobs for drivers? Well, as as we both know, they haven't we haven't built a car yet. So there's a lot of speculation around how long it's going to take to finish these because you know, the community expectations of safety are very high. Um, sometimes with some apps... You can release it to the market when it's not quite finished, it's in beta, get people to try it out. Um, I, I don't think that's the community's expectations for these self-driving cars, so it could take a while. And Australia still has 18 million cars. People typically hold on to them for 10 years and you know, people are going to keep driving themselves to and from work for a while. So I think there's going to be a lot of lot of work still to be done in encouraging Australians to, to share their rides, for that to be a normal thing to do to feel guilty even of having four empty seats in your car while you're stuck in traffic. So the self-driving Ubers will come, but there's there's still a lot of cars on the road today. Oh, that's, that's certainly true. Um, one of the ways in which Uber is a disruptor, and perhaps even the main way, is, is regulation. And uh, obviously in Australia you've had to deal with every different state government and had presumably, I think, at least a, a different experience with each government. And I'm not even sure you're there yet, are you? I mean, have you got? Uh, are you entirely legal in every state of Australia uh, as we speak? Yeah, you're right. That was that was our our big job last year. Really, was helping the governments understand how ride sharing works. The ACT in New South Wales were the first to say this is great. Here's a framework in which you can operate. Um, some states were slower, that's for sure. But as of now, every state government has said ride sharing is here to stay. And they're starting to actually write the rules. NT, I think, is the last one to get that done. Um, they're so going to put a fee on it, aren't they, in the Northern Territory? The Well, they haven't written their plans yet. Uh, Victoria is a place that is planning a levy. They're planning to charge consumers an extra two bucks on all taxi, Uber, ride-sharing trips. And, um, and that levy is to fund, what would you call it, a compensation to taxi drivers? Well, not taxi drivers. Oh, taxi owners, sorry, plate owners. Um, that's right. And so there is... But don't you think that's fair enough? These people have invested in plates. And it's fair enough to say, you know, you invested in your plates, you paid your money, you take your chances. But in a way they bought a franchise that, that's a government, um, statutory government fa uh, franchise. Well... So perhaps they have an... If you have can point me to that document that said it was a, a government franchise... Uh, that'd be interesting. It, it never was. It oh, never I see. Was. Um, so the that's, that's the impression, that, it, that it's actually a government licence that they were given and that the government therefore shouldn't take it away. Well, they haven't taken it away. And that's actually uh, you know, something that something we would advocate for is you know, there's a bunch of taxi licence owners out there. Almost none of them drive cabs. They just own these assets. 
Um, some of them got them a long, long time ago and some of them got them for free. And so the first question that needs to be asked is, you know, let's put all that information out in the public to see how do they get these plates and what price did they pay for them. There might be some arguments where some of them are in financial hardship. Um, there'll be some cases where they've earned a very handsome amount of money over a very long period of time. The other thing that needs to be investigated is whether or not people are actually using taxis any less than they used to be. Our experience worldwide, as I discussed before, is people give up their cars and they're using all modes of transport more. Taxis still retain the exclusive right to pick people up on the street, strangers up in the street, exclusive right to hang out in taxi ranks and they've got a rank at the airport. So they are still being used by a lot of people. And so the, the claims for compensation need to be backed by that information. What did they pay to get these licenses in the first place? And how's their business going? Because they still have that, that license and they still have an exclusive license. So they're still protected. They still have bus lanes. They still have a bunch of benefits. Um, so it's, I think it's a bit early to have their hand out looking for compensation when we don't yet know the full impact on their business. And is Uber ever going to push to be a part of um, Rank and Hail? It's not how our app works. So the Uber app, you open it up. As a passenger, you've got to register your contact details so we know who you are. And you put in a request for travel with a certain destination. A, a, a driver who's nearby who's been through the same sort of checks it matches you up. The point is it's all been booked. It's yeah, been so you couldn't really be a hailable service. And it's not the way we like to do business. So the, the problem with street rank and hail is that you've got anonymous people getting into the back of the car. And so you don't know who's in the car. It's a very unsafe situation for the driver. And then you're probably going to pay with cash as well. So that driver's rolling around the street with a bunch of cash sitting in the car. The risk of passengers getting in that are anonymous and then doing runners at the end of the journey can't happen in an Uber. The whole trip is tracked. You're paying through your credit card. So that's the, the service that they provide is not the same service that, we, that we've built. Um, and we think it's a safer way of getting from A to B as well. We'll have to leave it there. It's been great talking to you, Dave. Thanks. Hope that was interesting. It was. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.